0: Hello! Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Evan, Rat- Evan Ratliff. What's Remember up, me, Max? <laughs> hey, guy. It's only been a couple hundred episodes. Uh, Evan Plattriff. <laughs> Max, I feel uh, more ignorant than usual coming into this episode. I know nothing about what you've done, who you've talked to. Aaron's not even here. I feel and... like I have to talk more. <laughs> See, just keep talking. Just keep going. That's all I got. <laughs> this week on the show, Evan, I interviewed Krista Tippett. Oh, Ah. Krista Tippett is the host of a very successful, well-known, fantastic radio show, also a podcast called On Being. Krista is uh, an incredible interviewer, and I talked to her a little bit about the art of the interview. She's got really interesting thoughts, surprising, counterintuitive thoughts about what makes for a good question, and we talked about that. But also, little-known fact, Krista Tippett got her start as a stringer for The Times in Berlin in the 80s, pretty interesting time to be covering the city of Berlin. Yeah, it's a good beat. I like the idea of a podcast that can then make this podcast better. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Basically, I was just like, uh, it was a scam. I was just trying to get notes. (laughs) I'm going to do someone next week that is really good at the art of the intro. (laughs) You and I clearly need some help on that. Uh, I should also say part of the reason that we had Chris on the show this week is that she just uh, wrote a book. It's called Becoming Wise and it's sort of a distillation of all of these conversations that she's had. And speaking of Distillations, Max. Do we have any sponsors this week? <laughs> yeah, you do need to do that intro. One that was maybe the worst segment we've ever done. <laughs> uh, the sponsor this week is Mailchimp. They are an incredible way to send an email newsletter. Over eight million businesses use Mailchimp for their email newsletter needs. Longform does, Adivis does. Also, special uh, shout out to our friends at Mailchimp this week. They got a big, uh, big old write up in the New York Times. Congratulations, Mailchimp! Shine deserved. Congrats. And now here's Max with Krista Tippett.
1: It's like how I'm with my children, you know, like I was, I mean, children, my children are now actually grown up or 18 and 22, but for the longest time, when they were little, I would realize they actually took me seriously as a parent, <laughs> right? Because I'm just making this up as I go along. And I also feel that way about being a radio host. <laughs>
0: But now you feel like a legit radio host.
1: Well, I feel like other people think I'm a legit radio host. <laughs> At least some people.
0: <laughs> but not you. You haven't quite gotten now there. Now
1: I'm in. I feel like I'm a legit conversationalist. Okay. But the whole performance piece of it is not. I do that because I ha- it has to be done.
0: Do you feel like... I'm getting way ahead of myself because this is like actually a thing I wanted to ask you. <laughs> but maybe I'll just ask you now. Uh-huh. I feel like um, this is like a con getting to do these interviews that's how it feels to me like if i'm being most honest it feels like a con like i've listened to your show for a long time I'm a big fan um, it probably would have been really hard for me to get you to just come to my office for like an hour <laughs>
1: because you have and a shoot, podcast and you shoot can shoot invite the shit, anybody over yeah right
0: like no yeah. way i could yeah. like you are uh, a busy person you <laughs> right. just come talk to some schmuck in brooklyn for an hour about all his questions about how you do your job uh, but now, like, we have these microphones, right. and some people will listen, and therefore, uh, here you are. Yeah. Feels like a con. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's true. I had not thought about that. Podcasting is, it's like opening up all these living rooms. Right? Yeah, Where, you, at can, its where best. you can get, where you can invite who you want, and maybe they'll come.
0: Right, yeah. At its best, it feels like uh, a living room. Although, if, like, uh, if you're actually, like, putting on a play in your living room, that can start feeling a little false. <laughs> all right. Let's actually start. Okay. Yeah. Hello, Krista Tippett.
1: Hello, I'm glad to be here.
0: You have this lovely way of starting interviews where you ask people to go back to their childhood and explain the sort of spiritual background of their lives. Mm -hmm. I assume that's a question you've been asked a couple of times.
1: (laughs) Yes, recently.
0: So we're going to skip that because (laughs) this is not a podcast about your spiritual life. It is a podcast about your journalistic life.
1: Yeah. So, I'm going to ask you just, to. Excited to talk about my journalistic life.
0: Well, good. I'm glad you're yeah. here. Uh, so, I'm going to ask you uh, to go back to a different time, uh, not your childhood, but your time as a stringer for the New York Times in Germany. You were just out of college. You had graduated from Brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had grown up in Shawnee, Oklahoma,
1: mm-hmm.
0: gone to Providence, then you had ended up in Germany and you had started writing for the New York Times. This is like mid-80s. 83,
1: 84. Okay. Which was just an amazing time to land in Germany because the, uh, nobody remembers this now, but the Pershing 2 missiles were coming. So there was this huge peace movement that year with people my age were out on the streets. And I felt like this is the closest I'm ever going to get to know what it was like to be alive in 1968. <laughs> <laughs> and I was at a university.
0: How did you end up streaming for the Times? And what were your journalistic goals?
1: hmm I had done a bit of writing for the Brown Daily Herald in college. I was interested in journalism. I really thought journalism and covering politics, that that's where the interesting questions were being asked and the important solutions being applied. So I just loved journalism. The story of how I started to be a stringer for The Times is... um, it's kind of a story about throwing yourself out there in a reckless way and then also being lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, 1983, million people on the streets in Germany, peace movement, and this incredible anti-American sentiment which was so new in post-war Germany, which had basically up to then been completely grateful to us. And, you know, I'm 22 and I and I wrote this op-ed piece for the New York Times, and as it was in those days, I put it in the mail. <laughs> and and then never had any idea whether it arrived and never heard anything and 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 I wasn't all that surprised at not hearing anything, but you know, I'd done it. So so then I'm in one of my political science classes in Bonn one day and this fellow student says to me, she heard my name and she said, Oh, did you write an op ed piece for the New York Times? And I said, Yes. Did it get published? Right. So this is the world we live in. There's no Internet.
0: Wait, but no one even just sent you a letter back that was like, no, but and it
1: hadn't gotten published. Right. And I said, you know, I kind of thought I'd know if it had been published. And she and I and I said, did it get published? And she said, no, but I work in the Bond Bureau of The New York Times. I mean, she worked making coffee filing. And she said. One thing that the Times used to do back then, if they got something, I, I think, that they thought was at all interesting, they sent it to the correspondent in Bonn. Of course, by the time he got it, it was probably out of date anyway. But <laughs> and, somehow, and also, like,
0: weeks and weeks later. Right? <laughs> oh, no, yeah, weeks yeah. and weeks later. So it went all the way Three from Bonn to later. New York, yes. back to Bonn. S- sat
1: there for a month. So she said the op-ed piece I had written had turned up in the Times bureau in Bonn, and she had seen it. And then, of course, it had just languished. I mean, it probably got thrown away. But it's one of these serendipitous moments. So then she and I became great friends. Um, I ended up visiting the Times Bureau with her. She took a vacation. I filled in for her. I made coffee. I filed. The thing they did then, sounds so quaint now, they had this big book. All the Times Bureaus in the world had this big book where about every three weeks, the Bureau would get a huge shipment of newspapers, and they would cut out with scissors the articles by the correspondents in the bureau, and then they pasted them with glue into a big book. (laughs) (laughs) This is the world before the internet. So I did that. Okay. I I took the scissors and pasted. But then because I was there, you know, then I wrangled my way into covering a press conference. Wrote a few things, showed them some things. And then at the end of the year, I decided I wanted to go to Berlin. And actually, there wasn't a Times correspondent in Berlin. There had been a stringer, and she just retired. So very flukishly, they said, okay, do you want to be the Times stringer in Berlin? But there was no promise. There was no no salary, no guarantee that I'd ever publish anything. But then I, you know, I hustled, and I published some things.
0: What, I mean... What an incredible gig! Like, could be the stringer in Berlin in 1984. That's amazing. That's like a assignment of a lifetime.
1: I know. Actually, did you know what
0: you you were doing?
1: You mean in terms of the writing or the yeah? uh... Like, I
0: could imagine showing up having like walked ass backwards into that assignment, (laughs) and then actually getting to Berlin and just like. Sitting on my bed uh, and going, "I don't know what happens now."
1: I did some of that, but I—I I guess I was always a good networker. The thing about West Berlin in 1983 is that, on the one hand, it was the fault line of the Cold War world. On the other hand, it was an island in the middle of the Great Communist Sea. It literally was an island. I mean, there was this great story of this general who came to coordinate the Berlin airlift. And actually only when he got to Germany and somebody showed him the map and said, General, here's where you have he said Oh my, the story's like, Dick, are you telling me that West (laughs) Berlin is in the middle of East Germany? And it was, and so it was this little island, and it was also, it had the social life of an island, even though the people you were dealing with were like the American general, you know, a lot of people who were actually spying, and you didn't know it, all kinds of diplomats and spies and generals. And so I got, I just, because I was a New York Times stringer, even though I'd never written anything, I I got, I just immediately introduced myself, got into all the cocktail parties, all the diplomatic dinner parties, and then that was also a way to get into stories. How did you navigate that world? Like, <laughs> no one what... ever asked me about
0: this time of my life. It's fascinating. So, what, <laughs> what happened? Like, how did you figure it out? Aside from just saying, "Like yeah, I'm Krista I... Tippett of the New York Times." What, like, when you find yourself at a cocktail party with a bunch of American diplomats and you were what twenty? Yeah, I was twenty. What
1: twenty two, twenty three, twenty three,
0: twenty four. You were saying these things casually. It sounds totally crazy to me. How, no, what did you do? It does.
1: I, you know, I don't know. I, I faked it. I mean, I. I had a lot of fun. And I, I met other journalists, British journalists, who would just be a little bit older than me. Well, the other thing, I, I had a great advantage. I, this is important. I had spent a semester from Brown in East Germany.
0: And
1: mm-hmm. in, in, not in East Berlin, but in Rostock on the Baltic, like really in East Germany. I was very fluent. And I knew people on the eastern side of the wall. And this actually made me really special, just in terms of something I knew and could talk about. So I think I you know, I parlayed that. I, mean, I, I just brought that in.
0: Do you remember any of those stories? What stories? Stories uh, you ended up writing.
1: Uh, the Times never gave a byline in those days. I don't know what their policy is now because they pretended like they didn't have stringers, literally. Uh, oh, really? So it would just say special to the New York Times with nothing above it. <laughs> but do you remember Mengele, the Auschwitz, the Nazi doctor who did all those horrific experiments on yes. twins? His body turned up in... Argentina, I think, and when some of these bones turned up and they said they thought it was Dr. Mengele, because nobody knew where he was. Was he still alive? Was he experimenting on children still? they sent me to his hometown in West Germany, which is a very dark place, like right out of Grimm's fairy tales. And I was supposed to find out if this this was really this was really his romance, and I actually got to the guy. The man who had brought letters back and forth between the Mengele family, which really owned this village, and Joseph Mangala in, I think it was Argentina, all those years, and he told me that it was true. I just positioned myself outside his house, and, and before, first so I had to go through the village and get somebody to tell me where he lived, and um, and I, you know, I said, "I'm this young American. I've come all this way to talk to you," and somehow he bought it. <laughs> So I, I mean, I had some great adventures.
0: Seems like it. Yeah. Did you
1: whole different life? Feels like another lifetime.
0: Well, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm sort of not surprised to hear you say that because the <laughs> whole time you were talking about it, you had this kind of like nostalgic, <laughs> like uh, wistful look in your eye.
1: Yeah. Well, I really no. I turned my back on that kind of journalism intentionally. Um, Why? Because as much as I had so many great stories to tell. You know, ultimately, and it was, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but um, it wasn't for me to be, to wake up every morning and wait to see what news would present itself that I had to cover. Because, you know, I, I liked stories where I got to start really investigating something or looking at it deeply. And with that kind of breaking news journalism... You know, the minute you kind of feel like you've wrapped your arms around something, you move on to the next thing. So right. it's always re- it's always reactive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it and it never can really go deep. So, and that's not that's not really who I am.
0: And you knew that then.
1: I figured it out.
0: Here's a quick break. I'm going to tell you about the sponsors that are making today's show possible. Finding great new wine is not easy, and that's why we've been telling you about Club W. They make it super easy to get wine personalized to your palate and delivered right to your door. There's a little update for you. Club W, it's now called Wink. That's spelled W-I-N-C. It's a new name, new look but the same basic service. Wink works directly with winemakers and growers from all over the world to create delicious wine and deliver it right to your door. They've got a 100% satisfaction guarantee, which means if you do not like a bottle they send you, they'll replace it with one that you love. No questions asked. These aren't just random bottles. They are based on what you like. There's a whole palate quiz you take when you sign up and they start figuring out what you like. You rate bottles, you get ones that you like even more and more. It is a self-fulfilling circle of wine deliciousness. The best part? Wink is offering our listeners 20 bucks off right now when you go to trywink.com slash longform. They'll even cover the shipping. You get free wine personalized to your palate, delivered right to your door. Try Wink and get 20 bucks off when you go to trywink.com slash longform. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com slash longform. Also sponsoring the show this week, Squarespace. And it's time for you and I just to have a conversation. Let's have an honest dialogue there's probably a website you've been meaning to build, right? And chances are, if you listen to the show, it's probably a website for your writing. I mean, it could be anything, a professional website, some for your business, but probably you've just been meaning to put up that personal website with all of your amazing articles for all these different places all over the web. You need a home. Squarespace is the way to do it. It's super simple. You don't need to know a lick of code. They've got beautiful templates that you can drag and drop everything into. It's going to look professional, 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 except you don't actually need a professional. You can do it all yourself. If you hit a snag, they've got great customer support. It's 24-7, but you're not going to hit a snag because it's so easy. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com slash longform. That's squarespace.com slash longform. Enter the code longform when you actually decide to sign up. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. So you figured out in that time that reacting wasn't what you wanted to be doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't what I wanted to do. So then I was offered a job with the State Department, with our um, chief diplomat in Berlin, because he wanted me to know everybody I knew
0: you were saying like you're a good networker. Yeah. That sounds kind of, I don't know, kind of like cynical to me. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess my question is, mm-hmm. was that a natural thing that you did? Is that a natural thing that you do now, like get to know people? Or did you arrive in Berlin at 22 and think, I better get to know everyone I can?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting observation because the word networking had probably not been invented then. Like the word. I still remember the day. Uh, in my last year in Berlin, I was um, chief aide to our ambassador to West Germany. And I, and I remember the day when he took an Air Force jet to Munich and took me with him so he could be on Good Morning America for five minutes. This <laughs> is a taxpayer expense. This is why I eventually got really morally discouraged with the enterprise. And he explained to me the word soundbite, which had just been coined. <laughs> the new word soundbite. So I think so, so. This was so, and I think networking is also a word that yeah. I'm networking I'm,
0: and soundbite have like Thanksgiving, right? Together. And
1: yeah. I'm 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 like uh, projecting that back on the 1980s. Maybe the truer way to say it is I I really am interested and curious about people, and I mean I was able to do this in a str- kind of a strategically meaningful way, but mm-hmm. but I. I I'm interested in I mean I'm not extroverted, honestly I'm an introvert, but I do like people and I think even then if I was even if I was at these diplomatic dinner parties where you're right, I was totally out of place. Like what was I doing there? But I was asking good questions and I wasn't asking good questions because I was being cynical, I was asking good questions because I was really interested in what they were doing and I'd have some kind of base of knowledge to be formulating a decent question, maybe.
0: I wanna to talk to you about what makes for a decent question, but let's keep going sort of chronologically forward. So mm-hmm. where did your curiosity take you next? After you From became, Berlin. Yeah, after you became like uh, morally discouraged by the State Department.
1: <laughs> well, I was morally discouraged by the...
0: Tired of the New York the Times. By the absent...
1: Yeah, well, by the, I was morally discouraged by the absent inner life of all these powerful men who were truly running in the world.
0: Tell me more about what you
1: said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was in Berlin which was the strategically most important city in the Cold War world, or symbolically at least, um, I actually was hesitant to take long vacations in those years because I was afraid that like, the Soviets would march in or the bomb would drop and I wouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, <laughs> um, I would miss it and not be able to get back in. Right. And, you know, the nature of that conflict made it very easy to feel that there was good on one side and evil on the other side, and you could really be fighting for good. Of course it wasn't that simple, but it was a lot more clear-cut than it is now. It was like, you know, good was um, magnified and institutionalized, and evil was magnified and institutionalized, and then there were ideologies involved. Now, we don't have ideologies. We just have kind of raw human pain and fear and anger and terror. So I thought that the when I I mean I gradually worked my way up to being sitting around the tables with these people who were moving those missiles around them map. So in nineteen eighty three I'd been with the million, you know, students protesting, being living in a country that had six thousand short and medium range missiles on their territory. And then I'm with the people who can change that. And they were Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but they were just they were there with these huge egos. And I also had the experience of being with this ambassador and he would be giving a nuclear arms speech, and he would be absolutely brilliant and speaking to some of the most important issues in the world. And then we would finish, and we'd be in the car driving back, and he's like a (laughs) 14-year-old. What do you mean? I mean, emotionally, personally. I mean, these were really stunted people.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think you kind of have to be stunted in a way to start dealing with, uh, like, nuclear arms?
1: uh, I don't know, but the question I was... I mean, I was at that age where I was asking, well, so what do I want to do with my life? And it's like, well, if this is the fast track... Because I, my resume looked really good at that point. Am I going mean, I to be spending my time with people like this? Right? Is do I become somebody like this? Mm-hmm. So even the question of whether you have to be like that. I mean, I think that was all swirling around. The other thing, Berlin was—it's like a big social experiment. This one people, one language, one history, one culture, split down the middle into two opposing ideologies, two radically different economic systems political systems. But what I saw is this enduring truth of life that we are not defined by our circumstances alone. And so I saw people who were living in West Berlin, where I was living, where we had these big, exciting lives. But people could be really Immature and empty and unimpressive as human beings. And then in East Berlin, they were deprived in terms of like basic choices and dreams and, you know, movement, things that we take so for granted. But the most compelling, warm, actually thrilling people I knew there were in East Berlin Mm And so I was trying to make sense of this. And I had not been religious or thought about religion or talked to anybody about religion or taken or used the word spiritual for a decade. But I eventually realized, like, this is a different category of questions I'm asking now. Mm. And I couldn't pursue those questions while being a, you know, news, breaking news journalist or a diplomat.
0: So what happens next?
1: So then I told myself that I was going to write a novel. <laughs> I had to have a project right. that was going to make couldn't me famous. Quit, no. Couldn't just quit your job. I know. I couldn't just quit my job. But I had gone to this little village in Mallorca called Dea on vacation a couple of times. And it was the most beautiful place I'd ever been. It was so peaceful. And so I said, I'm going to go to Dea. I'm going to write my novel. But I did quit my job. I just went into the ambassador and said, you know, I'm going to leave Berlin. Um Was that hard? No, I was so ready. I also think I was exhausted. Yeah. I was, because I, I was doing diplomatic dinner parties, you know, six nights a week. And, um, which sounds exciting, but like anything. um, Yeah, so I went away. I did write a really bad novel. And I, I just got quiet, which is not actually something I'd known that I needed to do. Mm -hmm. I hadn't, I wasn't going away to get quiet. I wasn't going away to get rested. I was going away to kind of because I had all this confusion, I didn't know what to do with. But getting quiet and getting rested just kind of settled me into whole parts of myself that I hadn't felt for a long time.
0: How long were you there for?
1: I was there for like three months, and then a friend came to visit, and I went up to the UK for a little while. And I ended up getting married kind of impulsively. <laughs> um, this is not all in the book, this way, is it? Well, this friend you came to visit was somebody who I had had this kind of a you know whirlwind romance with a year earlier. I was at this stage in my life where I was completely unmoored. you mm-hmm. know I'd yeah. been on this path that was so definable, right? And I stepped off it. And so I realized I was just wide open to like whatever would happen. And I mean, this person I married is the father of my children, and that's a huge role he has in my life forever. and we haven't been married for. Thirteen years,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but and then we together went to Yale Divinity School
0: to try and answer some of these questions. Yeah. That, that we're sitting with you.
1: It wasn't even so much that I thought I would have the answers; is that I thought it would be a place where I would have some tools to think these things through.
0: Mm-hmm. What were the things that you wanted to think through?
1: Well, just this whole question of how would my energy be well spent. Like, what, what is a life well spent? And if, well, this one, I think, if, if this whole spiritual part of life, if religion, could they be taken seriously? I think that was a big question I had. Yeah. Was there intellectual content? Could this be relevant in a world with all that complexity I'd experienced in Berlin? And so that was, I mean, that was kind of an open question I had to ask. And then I studied theology and also studying how people in that realm interrogate texts, which you never hear about, right? Especially back then, that was like the era of Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, right. just these really vitriolic, simplistic religious voices who made these very plain statements about God or the Bible. But actually in that world... It's amazing. I mean, people take texts apart. They look behind the words and, you know, take the words apart and do the lineage of words. And I mean, in in Judaism, it's like individual letters, you know. I was just fascinated by that. So it's very much the life of the mind is in there. It's very, very creative. There's so much more poetry in the traditions than we understand, like in the Bible. I mean, books that we've treated like nonfiction essays are poems. <laughs> and if something is an epic poem, you read it differently, right? You discuss it differently. You internalize it differently. So just that kind of discovery was amazing. It, and then I came out and it was just, I mean, you couldn't find it. I mean, this is not like, this should these should not be hidden disciplines. When yet. you
0: came out of that experience back into the rest of the yeah. world,
1: yeah,
0: how did you find find the space that led to your show like how how yeah. did you get from yale to on being
1: mm-hmm. well i think it's important that i still was a journalist right that was my grounding and that those are the eyes with which i saw the world one thing i learned that i think i think is the truth of people who make like career transitions I mean, I had really leapt from one field where I actually had some credentials and some skills, and then I just walked into something completely different. But when you make a leap like that and you come back out into the world, and I think this is any kind of transition like this, you're still mostly taken seriously for that thing you did before. Right. And also, I had thought I was leaving that behind, but when I came out, it was, it was kind of the journalist in me that was then looking at the world and saying, why can I not see this anywhere? And why is it this hidden knowledge that I had to go into all this debt to learn about?
0: How would you describe like, religion reporting at that point? Oh,
1: my God. Well, it's still pretty bad. It's better than it was.
0: What makes it bad? What's the problem?
1: Oh, There's so many things that make it bad. Journalists, you know, good journalists in newsrooms hold themselves to primitive standards when they're covering religious ideas and people. They're sloppy and simplistic in a way that they would never be with a political or economic person or idea.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: I mean, they get facts wrong. (laughs) They generalize because they don't take it seriously and they don't know how to take it seriously. They think of it as subjective And that flies in the face of this great journalistic value of objectivity. But of course, that is such a fallacy. I mean, we're learning that it's, first of all, not real. and I'm not saying it shouldn't be a goal, but we're learning that it's always imperfect. But also, I thought about this a lot after 2008, you know, the economy imploded because we realized that it had never been a science, after all. Like this, that this is not a rational part of life, after all. Mm-hmm. So somehow we had convinced ourselves that politics and economics have this rational
0: core—that yeah. it's math.
1: Yeah, and that you could somehow you could investigate it as a rational pursuit and make it ever more pure. Mm-hmm. And with religion, nobody felt like they could make that move, right? It was irrational at its very core. Journalists. tend to interview religious people the way they interview politicians. And what happened with Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, people like that, is they walked into that space, right? We'll have a debate with you, Right. right? We'll tell you what our values are that should be public policy. They kind of made a mockery of, you know, betrayed the spirit of what they were supposed to be representing by being willing to squeeze themselves into those political boxes in order to be heard. When journalists interview religious people, like when they interview politicians, you come at it from a perspective of skepticism, mm-hmm. right? Justify yourself. Prove that we should take this seriously. However, if you interview a musician or an artist, it comes from a place of appreciation, of understanding that these people are existing and creating in a realm that is mysterious. Like, we let that be true with artists, there's some kind of mystery going on. There's some kind of ineffable, unfathomable something about human experience that is being brought into expression, and so the journalistic inquiry is just help me understand this. Right. right? Like so, I think it would be interesting if journalists would think about religious people of integrity. You know, not the ones who have made themselves into politicians approach them more like artists with that kind of inquiry.
0: Which is basically what you do.
1: Yeah, which is basically what I do. Yeah.
0: Can we talk about what you do for a little bit? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When you decided to do the show, what did you want the show to be?
1: I wanted the show to be a big conversation. I was basically saying, it should be possible to cover... This part of life, you know, religion, spirituality, ethics, with the same complexity, balance, searching, intelligence that we apply to politics and economics and the arts.
0: And why is the best format for that not a uh, newspaper article but a hour-long uh, conversation? Well,
1: I mean, that's probably just because I – I mean, I actually don't think feature pieces about valiant religious people are very – they tend to be like putting people up on a pedestal and – They're not people who you could be like or would want to be like. But I think that was also because I love radio. And I thought public radio was a place where you could be able to try this and where you can do depth. But one of the first things public radio programmers were saying to me is, well, it has to be a magazine. They said you cannot do a single interview show. Because, and this is something they actually said to me, people will have to listen to that. (laughs) 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 I <laughs> wish they meant they won't be able to drop off their dry cleaning. They won't be able to pick up their kids' soccer. Right. They can't, You know, they can't get out of the car. You, you're actually expecting them to listen. What they called it then was destination listening. Mm-hmm. And they basically said the day of destination listening is past. No one will do this. It's too good, much call, a good call. Good <laughs> call. And then podcasting comes along, right? Yeah. And it is, it is all about destination listening.
0: It's impossible for me to imagine your show... In that format, like it seems yeah. to me, like I I don't know how you get to the place that you're trying to get to with people in 20 minutes. No,
1: or chopping it up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sound bites.
1: Yeah, sound bites. <laughs> that great invention.
0: <laughs> this is a show about networking sound bites. Yeah. I have a lot of questions about the way that you interview. There's a phrase that you use in your book, gracious listening.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What do you mean by gracious listening?
1: I put words in front of the word listening, gracious, generous, because the word listening and the act of listening, there's a lot of lack of self-awareness around that. I think that I grew up, and a lot of people in this culture grew up, experiencing listening as being quiet while the other person talks, basically. right? So that eventually you can say what you have to say. <laughs> I <Right. laughs> um, Listening is basic social art. But it's something we have to learn and practice, and we really haven't practiced like something a robust listening, generous, gracious listening, which is not just about being quiet, but about actually truly being curious. I mean, like really mustering curiosity, which can be as simple as being willing to be surprised. But if you think about how we walk into most of our public spaces or journalistic interviews. I mean, I mean actually if right if Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump walked into a debate willing to be surprised they'd be failing, right? That's exactly the opposite of what they're being.
0: Right, and also if they were to show that kind of vulnerability. Exactly. They get skewered.
1: Right. So I think that is just kind of a caricature. It's kind of an extreme caricature of actually how we are pretty much trained to go into our public spaces, which is that you need to be prepared. And also, we tend to go into encounters pretty much thinking we know who that other person is, right? <laughs> like we know who they voted for. We know what they do. So curiosity, I think, is something that is a virtue that can be really complex. And it's counterintuitive to how we walk through the world, especially how we walk through the public world. We are really taught to, to carry our opinions, right, to know how to express ourselves, to be advocates for what we believe or for our identities. And these things have their place, but we've made that the the main posture, you know, and actually saying just really be curious, like walk in there Wanting to be surprised. <laughs> wanting to know something you didn't know that is going to unsettle your foundations. We just don't do that in public. And then as you as you lean into it, you can learn what to do with it. That's why I talk about really simple things like saying, okay, one quality would be I'm going to be willing to be surprised. Mm-hmm. Like that's one way to kind of start it off in yourself.
0: When you sit down for an interview what do you have in front of you and what like what level of preparation have you done how do you manufacture the space to allow for that curiosity
1: yeah so i do a huge amount of preparation (laughs) um i have um i have four or five pages of notes in front of me i call my interview preparation saw the vulcan mind meld (laughs) (laughs) just like you know my mind to your mind your thoughts to my thoughts and the Internet makes this so possible, right? I try to really immerse. And, of course, if somebody's written books, then that's great. But often books or TED Talks are not actually the necessarily the most revealing way to get to know somebody. I mean, I'll, I'll watch that stuff or read that, but I'll also try to find other interviews they've done. Sometimes even just digging back to things people did when they were younger and, you know, less famous, if they're famous. So what I'm trying to do is not so much understand like what people know but how they think Mm -hmm. and then if i just have a sensitivity to that that really creates a hospitable space for them to think out loud with me and this transmits itself like viscerally within a very few moments of meeting somebody i mean you know we've all had this experience of walking into a room and you know and this is this is the experience people have when they get interviewed a lot by journalists is, you know, y- you know, you're going to have to defend yourself or explain yourself. Right. And that creates a certain amount of tension. And it puts you in a certain mode of what you are going to talk about and what you're not going to talk about. And I'm trying to create an atmosphere, intellectually hospitable atmosphere, where people have this sense very quickly that, oh, that I get, I get them, Like, she gets me. Mm-hmm. And then you just relax inside.
0: So that's what the prep is about, is finding the space where you can signal to people that you get them.
1: Well, it's even that I do get them, and they pick that up. Yeah. Who did I just interview that was really... Oh, okay. I just interviewed Monica Lewinsky.
0: Really? Mm -hmm. How's that?
1: Well, it wasn't for the show. It was for a project called The Nantucket Project. And actually, it was amazing. And she is somebody who has mostly been in untrustworthy spaces, right? I mean, it it was not safe for her. So I don't do pre-interviews, which a lot of people do. I just don't believe in them because there's too much that happens before the conversation. And then when you have the conversation, you know, everybody who's in the room, there's things that happen that they weren't there for right and um
0: you also end up trying to like recreate right and somebody will say as
1: i said to you when we were speaking two days ago she wanted to talk before the interview which i understood and it was really just about making sure that she i mean she she does listen to the show but that she could um i i think she, she has learned that she has to make sure you know she's safe and uh that was one where I actually had... But but what I didn't... I said I'm not... Sometimes people would like the questions you're going to ask, mm-hmm. right? And I just don't do that because then we won't have a real conversation. But I said, what I can promise you is that I'm not there to... Um, I'm there to, to draw out the best of you. Yeah.
0: It's such a warm thing to be able to say to someone.
1: It is. Yeah. It's a gift to give somebody.
0: There's a section in your book about... What makes a good question? And part of what's in that section is you push back on on how in love our culture has come to be with tough questions, yeah. And how we think the only questions that are good questions are tough questions. Yeah. But your definition of of a good question is is different than that, and it's a question that elicits honesty. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that?
1: I think one thing a lot of people do is ask questions that are interesting to them. Like, I've always wanted to know. That question people always ask me, even in interviews, is what's the best interview you've ever done? It's just, it's a not a good question. It's not a good question. It's, it, it asks me to simplify. It's an interesting question to you, but it's not a question that's interesting to me. So often when I start out preparing for an interview, I will have my questions that I think going into this, I'm probably going to want to ask this person. But in the course of preparation a lot of them will fall away. And what will come in their place is the question that's going to be interesting to them. And I can formulate that question because I'm immersing in their thinking. And so then the questions I'm writing are coming out of that rather than out of my head. And if you ask somebody a question that's interesting to them, I mean, you just, you know, they immediately, I mean, you'll hear it. They'll say, oh, that's an interesting question. (laughs) And then they stop realizing they're being interviewed and they're not even giving an answer. They're thinking in real time. And, I mean, this is part of what this, you know, you and I are in this podcast space. And I think that's part of the experience people are getting in the podcast space is hearing people think in real time, even if in a lot of cases very badly produced. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but that there's something amazing about, you know, being present for that, for people thinking in real time. And, you know, witnessing it and then sets things off in your imagination as mm-hmm. you listen.
0: Your show plays like a, a unique role in my life. I don't know if you have ever had this experience. Maybe you had it when you were in Germany or before you sort of leaned in to the way of thinking that you currently occupy. Sometimes I'll have like books on my shelf for years that I won't read, even though I know there's something in there that I really should hear. And I think it's it's in part that I'm worried I won't be able to hear it, right? Yeah. You only get one chance to hear it. And in a way that your show is kind of like that for me sometimes, <laughs> like it's sitting there on my phone all the time. And there are some moments where I feel calm enough, present <laughs> enough to listen. And there are other times I've tried to listen and I just can't like, mm. can't. I can't rise to the occasion, kind Mm -hmm, of, you mm -hmm, know? Like mm -hmm. I'm just my mind's too busy. How do you sustain the energy to have those conversations week in and week out? Like how do you, Krista, stay in that place?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I guess maybe a a secondary question to that is like, are you like that all the time? Like are you like that like when you go to the grocery store?
1: No, I'm not. (laughs) And, And and the answer is I don't I don't stay in that place all the time. Because being human, that's not the only place it is to be human. I mean, one thing, um, and I wrote about this in the book a little bit, because I I grew up in this very kind of anti-intellectual, a place where nobody ever talked about these things, or much else that I talk about now. And then I went to Germany, which is a place where it was absolutely impossible to have a superficial conversation. And I found that fascinating and energizing. But when I left, part of the reason I left my job was I've got to get out of here because I'm losing my sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I don't want to always be talking about important things. I actually feel this, you know, like I need at the end of the day to watch something on Netflix, <laughs> do some yoga. I mostly read murder mysteries in my when I'm reading for fun. Yeah, I was
0: going to ask, like, what are you watching on Netflix? Are we talking uh, about, like you know uh like a nature documentary are we talking no, about like no. bojack horseman
1: we're talking about breaking bad and true blood and
0: okay
1: <laughs> true but i love true blood so much <laughs> i really like vampires and in fact i think part of my like personal trajectory has been to get much more in touch with this part of myself that just needs to relax and have fun and i mean i i I am fun. I mean, I'm not a completely serious person. But I haven't necessarily... I'm fun. A lot of people
0: say I'm fun.
1: <laughs> but I haven't necessarily indulged in this side of myself for a long time. And that's, I mean, that's, that's growth for me. But I also say, I, I just, uh, for me, a huge piece of the last years of the period of doing this show is like, so much of this part of life is very cerebral, the way we do it, the way I did it growing up, Um, it's disembodied. Which life are you talking about? Religious life, spiritual life. It's it's about, I mean, there's this great lineage of denying the body and shaming the body and uh, I have just realized, uh, you know, in these last 15 years of my life that there's, I mean, there's no, spirituality, this disembodied is just not interesting to me. I can't even take it seriously even in myself and I think um, the reason I do yoga, I, I I try to meditate but I'm not good at it. I mean, I know that's, people would tell, if there were experts in the room, they'd say that's not what it's about either. But I just, um, I need to get completely out of my head. Uh, And then there's something about getting out of your head, into your body, uh, doing yoga, hiking, um, not thinking big thoughts, that is so humanizing and grounding. And I think, I just don't believe in anything that's merely spiritual I'm not interested in anything that's merely spiritual anymore. I have to Spirit. actually turn off all the deep thinking. But something you said, uh, Marie Howes, this poet who I've interviewed, you know, she said, I think the way you talked about listening to my show, I really get this. I've, I've sometimes wondered, if I didn't do my show, would I listen to it? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd be very critical of myself, but of course, that's just the human condition because I, I mean, I can't stand to listen to it because I'm critical of myself. But... The way you described listening to the show is the way I feel about reading poetry, which I think is so essential and so wonderful, but I it's I have to I have to either be so um so kind of strong or so crushed in a way to like let it in. Right. Right? <laughs> and she said, well, poetry hurts a little bit going in. And and that's such a contrast to the way we We walk through our consumer society where everything is being engineered to go in so easy so that you hardly even notice, but then you're in the rabbit hole and you're buying that thing.
0: Well, maybe you need to find a way to bring some more of like fun Krista to the show. Yeah. Maybe you need to get like, you know, these these, these comedy podcasts, they do pretty well. Maybe, (laughs) Maybe you just need to get like a comic on every now and again.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Or maybe that's... There's
1: there's actually a lot of laughter in the show. I
0: know, and, I know, and, I know.
1: No, because people say that to me. Have you thought of it? And there is a lot of lightness and laughter, but it's it's woven in.
0: There's a line in your book about the distinction between hope and optimism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I knew you and I were going to talk before I read your book. And one of the things I wanted, really wanted to talk to you about was optimism and how the role that optimism has played in this in this journey of yours and your willingness to sort of like take these careers and put them aside and and follow these questions and follow this curiosity of yours. And then I read that line about the distinction between optimism and hope, and, mm-hmm. and it reframed the way I was thinking about it. So maybe it would be better if you try and explain what that distinction is than I am.
1: Yeah, I know that some people use the word optimism the way I use the word hope. But for me, the word optimism is like wishful thinking, you know, like we, we hope it will all turn out okay. I think of hope as something that is reality based that is taking in the fullness of reality uh that has nothing to do with wishful thinking and that is kind of muscular and I think uh, like any virtue it's it's a choice you know it's it's and i and I think that's an important thing to say that it's not like some people are born hopeful with a sunny disposition <laughs> right, and the rest of us is just not available to us. Yeah. And it's a choice i think it's something you practice and then it becomes more intuitive the thing about taking in the fullness of reality is there's a lot in it that is dark so if i say that hope is reality based you know i am not hopeful about our current presidential election right that that's not that wouldn't be grounded in reality it's a it's a mess like i don't even know what that would mean to say i'm hopeful about it cuz cuz you know and even if i was talking about a certain candidate winning or not. I'm just, because I'm interested in the human condition, I'm just so aware of all of this human pain and fear and all these things that are bringing out the worst in people that are rising up that we are going to be reckoning with and we're all going to be reckoning with like whoever wins on November 8th. So I'm not hopeful about, uh, that, to be hopeful in this way is not to say I'm hopeful about everything. But what I, if I say that it's about taking in the fullness of reality, I mean the the ugly and c- c- catastrophic and failing parts of human reality get all the, all the publicity. <laughs> I mean, like we know what they are, and we're getting confronted with them again and again. But it's not actually the whole story of us or this moment. So to say that I am that I choose hope also means that I'm. Being intentional about seeing, paying attention to, giving voice to what is also generative, you know. So if I say I'm hopeful about our – that I want to be hopeful in the long run about our public life, even our political life, what that means to me right now is that – we do have this work that belongs to all of us of kind of re-knitting the fabric of common life, kind of figuring out what common life means in the twenty first century, which I, I think is part of all the disarray right now because it it doesn't mean what it meant in nineteen fifty, no. and it's not going to mean what it meant in nineteen ninety, um, and we don't we don't know what it looks like, and it has it it's partly digital, and but we have to figure that out, and we all have to figure it out. The politicians, the president, is not going to figure it out for us, even if it was the greatest president we could imagine. So that's just an example of what it means to say that, I, you know, that I, I choose hope for our public life right now.
0: What do you hope for yourself?
1: Oh, well, that's an interesting question right now. That's a question that's interesting to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, only, it only took me an hour.
1: <laughs> I'm actually trying. So I started this show 13 years ago, 2003. It launched as a weekly national public radio show. That was also a different world. And of course it started with two stations. It's not like it's always been what it is now. But it's a good long time. And now of course, you know, the podcast is bigger than the radio show, the world has changed, even the media has changed. So I'm I'm thinking right now, I I don't wanna be static, right? Like I even if after I died public radio stations would continue to air my show, I'm I'm not aspiring to be the car talk guys, right? <laughs> Like, I mean, at some point I'm going to stop doing this but I'm thinking if mm-hmm. I, I think I really, really care I, what feels so urgent to me is this public life question, this common life question so, and this whole these questions of what does it mean to be human and what, do, what does it mean to lead a worthy life and uh, 21st century people are having to reframe all of that and live with it I want to connect that and I actually think I think millennials and new generations are really ready to do that, connect that search and and a commitment to inner life that those nuclear arms experts of my 20s did not have <laughs> with, okay, so then what does that mean for our life together? Mm-hmm. That's kind of emerged as kind of this new edge of what I do that just feels more and more important to me. So I'm hopeful that um, as I move forward these next few years, I'm going to figure out how to lean More into that, and I don't, I don't know what that means, but then I'll figure it out.
0: I look forward to seeing what it is. (laughs) Thank you, Krista. Thank you so much.
1: It's been really fun.
0: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Mickey Capper. Our intern is Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors wink squarespace and of course our dear friends at mailchimp thanks most of all to krista tippett you can hear her podcast on being at onbeing.org. her book is called becoming wise we'll see you next week i don't know of any other show that puts out the unedited interviews i know what was that decision about?
1: This was, this was Trent Gillis, who created our digital presence. And he said, if we really believe in transparency, um, which is a value of the internet. He he also, I think personally, he's, he didn't come at this from being a journalist. He felt like there was a lot of interesting stuff that got cut out yeah. in order. Because I do a 90-minute interview that got cut out to create the 52-minute show but as the person doing the interview,
0: I find that's the most terrifying thing I've ever It's
1: terrifying because I'm not, because I know, because I have the 90 minutes and I, I know exactly. So just, we were talking a minute ago about the, 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 you know, the roadmap. Because I'm doing it that way, I can let somebody just wander down this path for 10 minutes. And I'm pretty sure that nothing is going to come of it. And, you know, sometimes I'm rolling my eyes because it's not good. And I know it's going to get cut. But either because it's really important to them, and I need to let them say what they have to say, or because I have a suspicion that if I let them keep going, there might be something at the end of that road that is a gem. But there, but it's full of that, and and the, and but people, um, people actually like that roughness of it.
0: Hmm. How, who, but people listen to the edited they, one. The edited one is listened to more than the unedited.
1: One. Yeah. But there, I keep I meet more and more people now who say I only listen to the unedited. Yeah, which on I feel embarrassed because I'm also I'm much more rough, right? I mean I'm polished in the fifty-two minutes. Yeah. In yeah. a way that I'm not
0: Yeah, the, all, most of my I'm edits edited are too. Just, yeah, most of my edits are just like are ta- you? please take out that dumb thing I yes, said. Yes,
1: we could all use Pro Tools editing <laughs> on everything <laughs> we say. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Why do you run?